Open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Many of you were involved in other areas of ministry Wednesday night, so you were not in our Bible study. Uh, others of you were working or uh, things like that. And so uh, I'll tell you something that happened. We had a cultist visit our service. I believe he was from The Way. I don't know. He, he wouldn't identify where he was from, but we believe he was from The Way International over in New Knoxville. And um, I was teaching on the attributes of God. We were finishing up that series. And I was talking about the simplicity of God, the attribute of simplicity, and that is that we don't have a multitude of gods. There's one God and three persons. And I asked the question, why is it important to believe in the Trinity? And um, so he started asking questions about the Trinity. And so as we went through the Scriptures... I realized that this man was a cultist and he was trying to undermine the faith of the people in the room, cause them to question. Uh, I may talk a little bit more about some of that. But I wanted to tell you a little bit about why I addressed him the way I did. He started asking questions and I answered until I could no longer answer him as, as a true questioner, I had to deal with him as a heretic. And the Bible instructs us on how to do that. And so I tried to be obedient to the Scriptures in the way that I dealt with this man. But it, it brought up this idea uh, to me. Uh, I want to make sure that our church, that everyone who attends Grace Baptist Church, is ready to answer a cultist about, a cult member, about the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's have a word of prayer, and, and we'll just do that this morning. Lord, help us today. Um, Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for the love that they've demonstrated to me. But most of all, our, Lord, our love goes to you, Lord Jesus. And we do love you, and we worship you. And so, Lord, now as we look at your word and who you are and the way you are being attacked, Lord, help us to learn and help us to be ready to give an answer to any man that asks a reason of the hope that's in us. Lord, help us to know how to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and look at verse 2. The Bible says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, He's saying he wants to present this church. Remember, the church is the bride of Christ. Amen? And so he said, I want to present you as a pure and chaste virgin to your husband, Jesus Christ. And look at what he is concerned about. Verse 3, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity... That is in Christ. Isn't it interesting that the doctrine that we were teaching was the simplicity of Christ on Wednesday night? And this discussion took place. But look at verse 4. But for if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, Ye might well bear with him. Ye might well bear with him. So here, here was Paul's fear that someone could come in and teach in that church another Christ, another Holy Spirit, another gospel, and the people would bear with him. They would say, well, this is just another teacher. And they would be deceived. And so the admonition of the Apostle Paul is that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we need to make sure that we know the truth so that we're not deceived by a false teacher. Amen? Amen? And so, you know, we had that, <laughs> that presentation, I'll follow the old man wherever he goes. Um, the Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And that's the heart of Grace Baptist Church, isn't it? I hope that you will follow me as, as your pastor. I hope that you will do that. But only as I follow Christ. Only follow my teaching as it is in agreement 
with the Word of God. So I, I want us to look at this subject a little bit. So number one, what is a cult? What is a cult? It's anyone who teaches another Jesus. That's the definition of a cult. Anyone who teaches another Jesus. Go to 1 John chapter 4. And I would recommend that you try not to take a whole lot of notes this morning. This will be recorded. You can get the CD. We're going to have to go through this material quickly. So just be ready to turn in your Bible. 1 John chapter 4. This is one of the answers that I gave to the, the man on, on Wednesday evening. 1 John chapter 4, look at verse 1. We're identifying what a cult is. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit. See that capital S? Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. So if someone does not acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that person is Antichrist. All right, so that's what a cultist is. Um, you say, but what about love? Aren't we supposed to love these people? Look at verse 9. In this was manifest the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Here in His love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's love. That's what love is. So a cultist is someone who denies that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. That's what a cultist is. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want you to notice something. These people that would come in, these false prophets that Paul talked about, that would come in and he was afraid that they might well bear with him. Look at the way that he describes them, he describes them in verse 13. I'm going to be so self-conscious about every stutter and stammer now. Thank you, Nathan. <laughs> Verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. And we understand from Revelation chapter 20 that when we're judged by our works, that we go to hell. You know, your works, the only thing your works can do is take you to hell. That's it. That's it. And they'll be judged by their works according to the word of God. So a cultist is someone who denies that Jesus Christ is God. It's anyone who teaches another Jesus. But it's also anyone who teaches another gospel. Anyone who teaches another gospel. And we saw that here in verse 4. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted. And so the gospel is to be accepted, right? And if another gospel comes along, well, that's a false gospel. And you all know immediately where we're going to go, right? Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. Galatians 1, 6. Just a couple of pages over in most of your Bibles. The Bible says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from Him, that's Jesus, that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. All right? Put a marker there in Galatians 1 because we're going to come back. So what is a cult? Number one, anyone who teaches another Christ. Number two, anyone who teaches another gospel. And then number three, anyone who teaches another Lord, another God. Uh, don't turn there. I'll just read it to you real quickly. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, 
And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. So there's only one God. There's only one God, and God will not share His glory with another. Amen? Amen? So we got to make sure that we, that we understand that if somebody brings another God that is not our God, that's a false God, and our God is a jealous God. Now, our God is a trinity. We believe in the triune God. Why do we believe in that? Turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. This was the first verse. This gentleman said that he had never seen anyone explain the Trinity in a way that he could understand it. And my first response was, well, I understand that because the human mind can't understand the Trinity. Amen? So that's okay. I said, but let's look at the clear teaching of Scripture on it. 1 John 5, 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. There's the Trinity. That is the biblical definition of the Trinity. Now let me say this. Um, most cultists, like most evangelicals, do not trust this verse. They say it doesn't belong in the Bible. Isn't it interesting that Satan would attack the best verse on the nature of God that we have in the Scriptures? Isn't that interesting? This man didn't do that. I don't know whether the way accepts this verse or not as being in, in the Bible. I don't know. Uh, but many of the cults, if, if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, they'll say that even your study Bibles will say that it's not supposed to be there. This is not a message on the Bible text, but I can promise you, I can assure you that this is in the Bible. We have, we have records from the first century of Christians quoting this verse. The reason that they say it's not supposed to be in your Bible is because they have corrupted manuscripts from the 400s that have this verse absent. But we know that it was quoted by believers in the first century. You can trust your Bible. Isn't that wonderful? God has preserved His words. And so this is the best verse on the Trinity. We believe in a triune God. The Father is God. And that, that's, that's clear. The Son is God. Hebrews chapter 1. Often you'll hear a cultist say, there's not a verse in the Bible that calls Jesus Christ God. They, they actually say that. Let's see if that's true. Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verse 8. But unto the Son, see that capital S? Unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Jesus Christ is God. That's a clear statement in Scripture. Now, this isn't the only statement, but this is a clear statement. One of the things in Bible study that we talk about is the principle of full mention. That is that for every doctrine, there will be one verse that gives us a clear definition of that doctrine. And here it says, Thy throne, O God, unto the Son. He says, Thy throne, O God, is forever. So how many of you believe that Jesus Christ is God? That's very clear. It's very clear. And then the Holy Spirit is God. God, the Holy Spirit, is God. Look at Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Now, remember, this is the account of Ananias and Sapphira. They had committed that they were going to sell some land and give it to God, give it to His church. And then they held back part of it. So they were lying. And look at what God said. And I want you to all think about this as you think about your five-by-faith commitments. Um, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, look with me in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias... Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? All right, so who did he lie to? The Holy Ghost, right? Is that right? All right, look at verse 4. Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto who? God. He lied to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is God. So God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Holy Spirit is God. And these three are one. These three are one. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse, verse 9. For in Him, this is speaking of Jesus Christ, and we know that because look at the, the previous three words, not after Christ. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
the Godhead bodily. So the Bible says God is a spirit. No man has seen him at any time. The Bible identifies the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, right? You can't see a spirit. And yet, the Bible says in him, Jesus Christ, what, how, what is it exactly? Dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The Godhead, the Godhead, that's the Trinity. That's one what, three who's, one what, God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. That is the God of the Bible. A cultist brings another Christ, a cultist teaches another gospel, and a cultist believes in another God. So, we understand what the truth is from the clear teaching of Scripture. This has been true from the beginning. Go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Let's see if the Bible gives us any understanding as to this triune nature of the one true God. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God, singular, said, Let us make man. In our image, after our likeness. What in the world is that talking about? That's talking about the Godhead. That's the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22. This is after the fall. And the Lord God said, Behold, man is become as one of what? Us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat forever and ever. So the Bible says there very clearly, let us, you will be like us. What is that talking about? There's no schizophrenia in God. This is the three persons of the Godhead. Look at Genesis chapter 8. Uh, go to Genesis 11. Look at verse 7. Go to, this is God speaking, go to, let us go down and there confound their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So here's God again, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That, that one Lord, the, the, the one Lord is, uh, our Lord is one Lord, Deuteronomy 6, 4. That one Lord is us, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's very clear in the scriptures. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 28. And this is why when Jesus Christ sent the church out in what we call the Great Commission, He said this, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. God is a trinity. And so if anyone denies that, that Jesus Christ is God, he's none of his. He's not, a, he's not a Christian. He is not a believer. He's a heretic. Now, let me identify something very clearly. There are people who have been taught false doctrine, right? And we can teach them the truth of the Word of God. That's different than a teacher coming in to subvert, right? There's a, there's a difference there. So, number one, what is a cult? Anyone who teaches another Jesus. Number two, anyone who teaches another gospel. Number three, anyone who teaches another God. All right, so that's number one. What is a cult? Number two, why are the cults successful? Why are they successful? Well, first of all, because they have new truth. They have new truth. How many of you have noticed that Americans, and especially in the West, that we have very short attention spans? I know some of you are saying, what are you talking about? Huh? What? Uh, in Acts 17.21, it says, for, the, for all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So people are always interested in something that's new. Right? And, and that's why when a new product comes out, what do they put? New. Or if that's something that's been around for a long time, it's new and improved. And so what these people do is they come along with a new and improved gospel. Is there any such thing as a new and improved gospel? No. 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 There's just the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then... Not only do they bring something new and there is no new truth, but they also provide answers. 
They provide answers. Um, and, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, plain answers, the plain truth, you know, all of those kinds of things, they're, they're going to provide answers. And they are very sure in what they say. That they're confident. They, they provide answers in a world where everybody's just looking for the truth. And now they provide them with the truth and they're very sure of it. Why is that appealing? Because most Christians don't have any idea what they believe. And most cults draw from the body of people that are so-called Christians. That's where they come from. That's why we're supposed to be ready. That's why Paul was afraid that these people would be beguiled from the simplicity that is in Christ. Why? Because somebody comes in and teaches another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. And so that's what they do. They, they believe, they, they provide answers. They're sure and they are passionate. And then they provide belonging. You know, when you're a member of a cult, that becomes your family. Right? And then they look good. They look good. They usually appear to be very loving and very kind. This guy from the way, one of the things that surprised people was how calm he stayed through the whole conversation. They appear to be loving, and they appear to be holy. Everybody always says this about Mormons. Well, they're, they're good people. Now, inside, you find out that they're just... That, that in, inside Mormonism, there's so much immorality that goes on. Child abuse, all kinds of wickedness. Why? Because the law kills. And that legalism that goes along with a works-based salvation destroys people's lives. Amen? So they, they appear to be loving... They appear to be holy, and they appear to have answers. Now, wait a minute. All of those things are supposed to be true of Christians. We are supposed to be loving. We're supposed to be holy. And we're supposed to have the answers for the world. It's very interesting. So they fill a gap in what Christians are supposed to be doing, but often are not. So, number one, what is a cult? We've identified that. And then why are cults successful? We've identified that. But then number three, what should our response be to cultists who attend our church? So when a cultist comes into Grace Baptist Church, in order to disrupt a service or to lead away people after him, what are we supposed to do? I've got a book. It's called Answering the Cultist at Your Door by Bob and Gretchen Passantino. And one of the things that she says at the end of that book is that remember to always treat the cultist with dignity and respect. We're supposed to, please don't say amen here because you'll be embarrassed in a minute. Um, we're supposed to, uh, to treat them with respect. We're supposed to hate the, the false cult, but love the person. The Bible says if anyone brings another gospel, which is not another, let him be accursed. I think Gretchen just needs a Bible. Um, it, 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 you would not believe all the errors that are in that book. I, I sat there with Laura last night. I was reading through some of it, and I'd say, listen to this. Listen to this. Listen. It's horrible. It is just horrible. And maybe another time I'll go into it and explain why that these Christian apologists are so messed up. But th the problem that we have to get to is if we allow these people to come in among us, what are they doing? They're here to deceive people. So what is our response? What is the biblical response to a cultist? Our first response should be love. Amen? But love for Christ. If you've got a love for Christ, listen, if you have a love for Christ that also loves error, that's not a biblical love, is it? Our first response needs to be love for Christ. Look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Amen? We can love because Jesus Christ loved us. That's how we can know how to love. Then look at chapter 4, 1 John 4, look at verse 6.
We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Look, if a person won't listen to the truth of the word of God, they are not of us. This whole passage is about loving your brother. That person is not our brother. That's a person that's come in to deceive us and to cause people to move away from the simplicity that is in Christ. The Bible's very clear on that. So our first response must be love for Christ. Can we look for a clear teaching of Scripture on this? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Look at verse 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. That means damned to hell. Maranatha, praise the Lord. Let him be damned to hell, praise the Lord. Did I make it up? Did I make it up? No. No. Do you see how messed up Christianity is? Seriously. Do you see how messed up Christianity? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got, he's got my brother and my sister in his hands. No. No. If you're saved, you're in his hand. Right? And you can't get out. Praise the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. But man, if you're not born again, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are outside. You're at enmity. You're at war with God. You need to be saved. God loves you and he wants you to be saved. What we're talking about here is the cultist who's coming in to deceive God's people. He's rejecting the truth of the word of God. We are to say you are damned to hell. Praise the Lord. I've never seen that on a pillow. <laughs> Look at Romans 16. Look at Romans 16. This is every, verse 16, this is every teenager's favorite verse in the Bible on worship. Salute one another with an holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. <laughs> All right, now, so again, the context here is love for the body of Christ. Okay, look at the next verse. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. So here's the deal. We're not supposed to be simple. We're supposed to be wise. We're supposed to walk, walk circumspectly, not as fools. But here it makes it very clear. Mark them and avoid them. So when this man was here after a little while, I said, how many of you people see that we have a heretic, a deceiver that's, that's come into our midst? Raise your hands what I said to them Wednesday night. What was I doing? I was marking him. I was marking him. This is so foreign to modern Christianity. Why? Because they accept everything. And one guy said, an open mind is for the purpose of closing upon something solid. Otherwise, it becomes like the city sewer, rejecting nothing. And much of Christianity is just a sewer. It's a perversion of the truth because there is an unwillingness to reject false teaching out of some false understanding of love. So what are we supposed to do? Well, we need to reject them. We need to reject them. Uh, look at uh, Titus chapter 3. And I had this gentleman read this. Titus chapter 3. Look at verse 10. A man 
that is an heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject. Now, I want you to get something here. Please get this. Don't miss this. Don't stay in an endless conversation with somebody like this. You show them what the Bible says. For this gentleman, I showed him what the Bible said about Jesus. I answered his questions. I, we, once, twice, I probably went beyond the bounds of Scripture. I bet I answered him three or four or five or six times. And when I saw that he, it wasn't just a lack of knowledge, that it was a rejection of the truth, I took him to this passage. Let's, let's read it again. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. He condemned himself. He rejected the truth. I identified him as a heretic. That's what we're supposed to do. And yet, I know that there are a lot of Christians who are very uncomfortable with something like that. Now, let me just say this. A lot of people just don't like conflict. Right? Others are born for it. You know, that's why you have people that run in front of bullets. Generally, lower IQ people like Josh and Dave, but, you know, it's just... Yeah. You have some people that are they're, they're born for conflict. That's what they're made for. Others, that's not in their nature. And it's interesting, when you read the Apostle Paul, he was born for conflict. When you read the Apostle John, he wasn't. But they both tell the truth. Why? Because it's God's truth. It's not their truth. Amen. It's God's truth. And so we must be ready. And that's why when you watch political debates, you know, what I want the guy to say is when they ask a stupid question, well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Are you stupid? Do you really believe that? But here's why they won't do it. Because a lot of the electric would say, oh, that's so mean. Just, oh. oh. But we're not supposed to be like that as Christians. We're not supposed to be. Quit you like men, the Bible says. We've we got to get tough on this stuff. Because, why? Because that's how the Antichrist is going to bring things into the church. Because people aren't willing to stand up and tell the truth. Jesus Christ is so interesting. When he was writing to the church at Ephesus, Jesus said this. He said, um, You have tried them which say they are, are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. But this thou hast. He's commending them for this. And he says, uh, and, also, and also, thou hast hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So think of the words that Jesus Christ is using there. You identified people as liars. That's good. Good job. Good job. And you hate this false doctrine. Hey, you're being just like me. I hate it too. But, but we've allowed the culture to influence, influence us so much, we don't know how to stand for Christ. So what should we do to prepare for a confrontation with a cultist? Philippians 3, verse 8. How, how should we prepare well, here's what you need to do. You need to get a good book on cults and know what every cult teaches. Good luck. Let's see what the Bible says. Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and, to and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. You know what we're supposed to do to prepare to meet a cultist? We're supposed to understand the priority of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I don't have time to study the Word of God. Well, then you're too stinking busy. Right? Now, everything else you need to count as loss for the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something that I was very thankful for on Wednesday night. I didn't know this guy was from the way. Didn't have any idea. I asked him two or three times, what group are you with? Where did you learn this? What books have you been reading to lead you to this point? And he wouldn't tell. He wouldn't answer. You know why? Because he's a liar. He's a deceiver. All right? But here's the good news. All I did was answer about who Jesus Christ is from the Word of God and I confronted every major teaching of the way in that meeting without even knowing he was from the way. 
Wow, Pastor, how did you do that? I just know what the Bible says about Jesus. Isn't that awesome? That's what we're all supposed to do. Now, now look, let me say this. Any pastor that can't do that needs to go sell cars or something. Right? You know, if you don't know who Jesus is, you don't need to be standing in a pulpit. So I think any pastor, any Bible-believing pastor could do what I did Wednesday night. It wasn't anything special. We just know who Jesus is. <laughs> Wonderful? That's we know who Christ is. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Preparing to meet a cultist. Verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold. Here, jump down to verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to, read this out loud with me, to the obedience of Christ. How about that? And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. We're not supposed to tolerate disobedience to the Word of God in our churches. We can't do it. we got to love Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. All right. The primary attack of the cultist will be on the deity of Christ. So we must be ready to answer about who Jesus Christ is. So let's just do a quick overview of who Jesus Christ is. Tonight in the evening service, we're going to look at the attributes of God and compare them to what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. And we'll see that every attribute of God is identified as an attribute of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. And you'll have those cross-references to write in your Bible and be ready to answer a cultist. But right now, let's just do a quick overview. Who is Jesus Christ? First of all, He is the pre-existent God. He is the pre-existent God. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. This is one of the times when I knew that this guy was a, cult, a cultist. He said, he asked me this question because he didn't believe that Jesus is God. And he said, can God die? And I said, well, that was the purpose of the incarnation. I mean, if you understand that, thou hast prepared for me a body, Jesus said. That body was prepared to taste death, to live a sinless life and taste death for you and for me. That was the purpose of the incarnation. But I didn't answer that question right away. He got frustrated that I wouldn't answer that question first because I saw immediately what his problem was. I asked him, do you believe in the preexistence of Jesus Christ? Well, that's not the question that I asked. Answer the question that I asked. No, do you believe in the preexistence of Jesus Christ? Jesus didn't begin at Bethlehem. He didn't end at Calvary. Do you believe in the preexistence of Jesus Christ? Well, he was born in Bethlehem. That's what he said. I knew immediately that this guy was a cultist. Now, look at this. Let's see what, let's see what the Bible says about it. And, and he said that the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus Christ was before them. And again, he just needs a Bible. Look at verse Colossians 1.17. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. It's very simple. It's very simple. Jesus Christ was before all things. It's a pre-existence of Christ. Um, look at John chapter 8. Look at verse 56. Okay, Jesus talking to the Pharisees. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old. How about that for today? <laughs> Again, you can't make up this timing on this stuff. Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Now look, then 
took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Why did they want to kill him? Because he said, I am. He said that he, he, he pre-existed Abraham. He is God. The Bible teaches his pre-existence. Um, look at John 17, 5. We've looked at this verse many times. John 17, 5. And now, O Father, glorify Thou me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. Jesus didn't begin at Bethlehem. Look at verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom Thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which Thou hast given me. For Thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Amen? See, what the cultist teaches, what, what the way teaches, is that, yeah, Jesus pre-existed God in, in pre-existed His flesh in God's mind. No, in reality. Amen? Amen? All right, so the, the, the way that we answer the cultist is to recognize the pre-existence of God. Then He's the creator of life. Jesus is the creator of life. This is a really interesting thing. Go to John 1. You all know this. We're going to look at this passage, and then we're going to go to Exodus. But look at John 1 first. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. All right? He made it all. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ created everything, including life. Only God can create life. That's it. Only God can do that. I want you to see this. Go to, to Exodus chapter 8. This is pretty cool right here. Okay, remember what's going on here. God has sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh to tell him to let his people go. And um, so the first thing that, Aaron, that Moses does... He meets the magicians there, right? Pharaoh's magicians. And so Moses casts down his rod and it turns into a serpent. What did the magicians do? Same thing. Now, Moses' serpent ate the other ones, which is kind of cool. But, now, now you young people, how many of you would like to have seen that? That would be awesome. All right? So then the next thing that happens is Moses and Aaron smite the waters, turning them to blood. But then Pharaoh's magicians did the same thing. It's amazing what demonic power can do. Then uh, Aaron calls the frogs up from the waters, and the magicians did the same thing. And then Moses pronounces that they would die, and they did. Um, then the flies come up. But notice what they're doing. They're controlling those things that already exist. The next thing that God has them do, where Exodus chapter 8, look at verse 16. And the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod, and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Everybody's going to start twitching here in a minute. Scratch your head. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man and in beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. Now look. Remember what God, what did God create man out of? The dust of the ground. Only God can create life. Only God create life, can create life. Do you know what else it says in John chapter 1? In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Only Jesus Christ, only God can create life. By Him, all things consist. He is before all things 
Colossians 1.17. And by Him all things consist. Jesus Christ is preexistent. He is the creator of life. Jesus was crucified because He claimed to be the Son of God. And here's what the cultist will say. Yeah, Jesus Christ isn't God. He was the Son of God. He was a lesser God. I'm not going to spend all the time to go into it. That is the, the historic heresy of Arianism. It's the idea that Jesus is a lesser God or not God. He's less than the Father. Let's see if we understand why they killed Jesus Christ. Go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Look at verse 28. Look at verse 27. <clears throat> my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Why did they want to kill him? Because when he said he and his Father are one, when he identified himself as a son of God, that meant that he was equal with God. How do I know that's what they were believing? Go to John chapter 5, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Look, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. So when they call him Jesus Christ, the Son of God, amen, he is the Son of God. That means he is equal with God. That's it. Amen. Look at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 63. Why did they crucify Jesus Christ? Matthew 26, 63. But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be Christ, be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said. You said it. That's awesome. Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Why did they crucify him? Because he said he's the Son of God. Look, Jesus Christ is the preexistent God. He's the creator of life. He is equal with God the Father. He is the eternal God. Then... Jesus Christ claimed the right to forgive sin. Look at Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Look at verse 5. Now remember what happened. Uh, the, Jesus Christ was healing. The house was full. This, these, these guys had a buddy who was lame. He was in a bed. And so they climbed up on top of the roof, removed the boards of the ceiling, and lowered the bed down. That's pretty cool. I could see some of our guys doing that, couldn't you? I think that's just awesome. Um, Josh Ferrier would just come down on the outside of the house. <laughs> just, <it> just... <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't right at all. Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there, and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Can you imagine how he freaked them out when he said that? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, take up thy bed and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, 
and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose and took up the bed and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. So what happened? They wanted to kill him because of that. He is able to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus Christ claimed that right. Then we understand that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Godhead. Let's just a couple of verses and we'll be done. We saw 1 John 5, 7. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. He's the second person of the Godhead. Look at Isaiah chapter 9. I love this. Isaiah chapter 9. Maureen will start singing as we get into this. Isaiah 9, look at verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, everybody say it with me, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That's Jesus Christ. That's our Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 16. How to answer a cultist. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. That's Jesus. That's Jesus, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, the only wise King. That's our Savior, Jesus Christ. How do we answer a cultist? We tell them who Jesus Christ is. Amen? And if they come into one of our services to deceive the people in our church, we identify him as a heretic publicly. That's what we do. That's how to answer a cultist. I hope that you're saved. If you're here this morning... We love you. We're not going to stand up and call you a liar or a heretic or anything like that because you've not come in here to deceive people. You've come in here to hear the Word of God. You've heard verse after verse after verse today. Do you know Jesus Christ, the Jesus of the Bible, as your Savior? Have you confessed your sin to Him, acknowledged Him as Lord of your life, and received the free gift of eternal life that He's offered you? I hope that you have. If you haven't, you can do that today. And then if you're a believer, how many of you here, you're in this room, you would say, Pastor, I need to make sure that I'm very familiar with who Jesus Christ is, more familiar than I am right now. I need to have this at, at, on my tongue. I need to be ready to answer this more than I have been. Would you raise your hand? Amen. Amen. That's what we need to do. That's the purpose of this message to provide this material for you so you can be ready. And we're going to continue that tonight. Now, I want you to I want to just say something here that's really interesting to me. One of the things that draws people into cults is because of their passion for their truth. They really believe it. One of the reasons that people are taken away from churches like ours is because people like us often don't demonstrate a love or passion for the truth. You all agree with that? Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word.